Lord, we are humbled to have this section of Scripture before us today. We don't deserve, Lord, the kind of counsel and wisdom and strength that you bring to us, to strengthen us, to uphold us, to give us perspective, and Lord, to, to enable us to live with a true awareness of who you are. And so, Lord, this morning, would you allow me simply to be your messenger, your mouthpiece, Lord, for this text? And would we, as your people, be strengthened? Would your Holy Spirit have his way? And would our hearts be teachable and humble before you? We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. One of my great comforts in this world is knowing that I have a sovereign God. His sovereignty means that he reigns supremely over all that he has created and the fact that he sustains it all. His sovereignty is, for me, an anchor that moors me to him. In the good times, times when I could easily forget the goodness of his work in my life, times when maybe out of neglect, um, I would forget to give him the glory like I should. But not only in the good times, even in the difficult times when heartache and trouble and confusion abound. In those times, I am comforted, but I'm also kept humble by the knowledge that my life is completely in his hands. In both the good times and the bad, I am assured, just like we sang, that he will hold me fast. And friends, that is the resounding note that is struck in 2 Samuel 7, in particular in verses 18 through 29. Eight times in our text, we have had the expression of praise mentioned. Oh, Lord God. Did you catch that? And if you have a new international version, the idea of that statement actually resounds even further. It says, Sovereign Lord. What David is doing now is he is praising God and he's, he's specifically identifying God's sovereignty in his work to bring about his purposes, to bring about his promises. And David is fully aware of God's sovereign work and power to bring him to this place of blessing. He's, he's fully aware of how God raised him up from obscurity. He's, he's fully aware how God chased the enemies away from David and how God was with David uh, through his whole journey to this throne that he now sits on. That's what we found in verses 4 through 11 of chapter 7. As God spoke these reminders to David. But now, there's something else that God has said. In verses 12 through 16, God also has given David a promise. What we call God's covenant to David or the Davidic covenant. Now friends, this was an unexpected word to David. If you remember, David was coming to Nathan and saying, listen, look at all I have. I want to now build a house for God to dwell in. I want to I move the Ark of the Covenant out of the, the temporary dwelling place of a tent and into a house. 
And if you remember, Nathan initially said, hey, that's not a bad idea. And then that night, God revealed himself to Nathan and said, this is what I want you to tell David. And it wasn't to build a house. What God was saying to David was, you want to build me a house, but I don't need a house right now. What I need is for you to know I'm going to build a house. And I'm going to build a house that is not physical in the sense of a building structure. I'm building a dynasty through you. Your line will be that dynasty. So now in verses 18 through 29, we come face to face with David's response to God's promise to him. And so Initially, we can say this is, the, this is the idea of this passage. This, might we say, is the proposition uh, as we look at this text, and we see David and how he responds to the promise of God in, uh, in this passage, or the promise of God in uh, his word, or God's word to him. Look at verses 12 through 16. Let's read this just to remind ourselves what it is that God has said. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your father's I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love... This is the hesed love, will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. If we just summarize that promise, we can come up with three things. A promise, first of all, relating to David and his line. A promise, number one, an everlasting throne and kingdom. Number two, an offspring, ultimately, which would eventually be fulfilled in the person of Christ himself. And then number three, his sovereignty to see it through. He's saying, I will establish, I will do, I will, I will. God, in his sovereignty, will carry out his plans. He will fulfill his promises to David. That's what he's saying there. And so what we'll see then in these verses is David's response to those promises of God to him. Now this is a promise of God to David, but not, get this, not directly to us. He doesn't promise us an everlasting throne or a kingdom. He doesn't promise that through our offspring one would come to rule and reign forever. This was a specific promise To David, still, it is a promise that is central to the message of the Bible. It's a promise that is a continuation of God's promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to Moses that will eventually find its fulfillment in Christ. Now, we can't claim this promise as our own, but we can recognize that through this promise, our hope is found in Christ, in Jesus, who is the fulfillment of this promise. This passage also, um, although it is specifically about David and his response to God, begs the question of us, 
So as we come to this text, not only do we want to see David and how he responds, but we want to consider how we respond then to the word of God and specifically to the promises of God revealed in his word that are intended for us. Now, I'm saying it that way specifically. There's a song I remember singing in Sunday school years ago. You probably remember it too. Every promise in the book is mine. Every chapter, every verse, every line. All the blessings of his love divine. Every promise in the book is mine. Now, what's good about that song is it reminds children, and anyone else who's singing it, that God is a God of promises. But there's also a problem. Because not every promise in the book is intended for you. And if you approach the word of God with every promise in the book is mine, you, we run the risk of actually claiming a verse or claiming a promise that was not intended for you as if it was intended for you. And so there's a need then to be able to understand the word of God and approach it carefully. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. I'm sure you'll relate to this. Um, Oftentimes in life, and specifically uh, as you're going maybe in high school or maybe you're younger and you're you're kind of growing up, there's a pressure put on you to come up with a life's verse. If I just ask how many of you have a life's verse, and people say, I have a life's verse. And usually that life's verse kind of summarizes what you believe and what you're about. And I never knew of the concept. I was a senior in high school at a Christian school, and my teacher was putting together the yearbook, and he's like, Rod, um, I need to have a life's verse from you because you're going to put your picture in the yearbook and your name, and I need a life's verse. I'm like, okay, well, what am I going to choose? A life's verse. What am I going to do? So I went home that night and just kind of leafed through the Bible, and I landed on a verse of Scripture, right? John 6, 63. It is the Spirit that gives life. My flesh profits nothing. Um, the words... See, I can't even remember it right now, right? My flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. And interestingly enough, although I like the verse, thankfully, I was actually understanding it in its proper context. And it would actually be a verse that would help me because it is not me. It is not my flesh that really matters. It is the spirit of God who's working through the word of God. And so that verse for me has become something that I have turned to again and again But over the last 20 years or so as I've been in ministry, um, there's one verse of scripture that comes up a lot as people's life's verse. It may be yours, and I'm sorry that I'm using this as an illustration, and you don't have to tell anyone that this was your life's verse because you'll stop it after I share this with you. Um, But it's Jeremiah 29, 11. And here's what Jeremiah 29, 11 says. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. You wrench that out of scripture, and that sounds really good, right? I know the plans I have for you. Oh, I feel better because God knows the plans He has for me. Now, is that true? Does God know that? Is is that something that we can go to scripture and say? Absolutely. Plans for welfare and not for evil. Ah, see, God is going to only give me good stuff, not evil stuff, good stuff. And not only that, to give you a future and a hope. Now, friends, 
The promise in that verse is we're, we're not intended for you. To claim that verse just like that as your own would to be to use that verse in a way that God never intended for it to be used. In order to understand that verse, you'd have to look at the context. And I'm not going to go into great detail about that, but Jeremiah is giving this verse as a promise to those who were being taken captive, who were being punished because of their rebellion, and he's saying, listen, after your rebellion and your punishment is, for that rebellion is over, I still have work to do with you. In other words, in order for this to be fulfilled, they're going to have to go through some evil, bad stuff. All right? And so it's a total misunderstanding and misapplication. And the point I'm trying to make here as we look at our, our premise here is we need to respond to the promises of God revealed in his word that are intended for us. So you go to Jeremiah 29, 11, and what do you say? You say, well, in, in the context of what's being said, we have a gracious God who exercises discipline on his children, but he doesn't give up on them. Okay, you, you come with a proper understanding, and there is hope even in the midst of discipline. We want to be careful that we're not wrenching things out of, uh, out of Scripture to make them say what we want to say rather than what it actually says. Now, friends, it's important then, we need to recognize then that even the things that are being said here in this passage are not necessarily prescriptive, they're descriptive, but we can learn because God does give us promises. Just turn to Ephesians 1. And he just lists a whole bunch of things that are ours in Christ. You're seated with Christ in the heavenly places now. That's a promise to you, to me. It goes on and on and on. There are promises there Then we need to allow them to fuel us. And so when David is thinking about the promise that God has given him, he responds really with two things, in praise ultimately and then in prayer. So let's begin by looking at this praise. He responds, first of all, in praise to God that is fueled with wonder. Webster defines wonder as a cause of astonishment or admiration, the quality of exciting, amazed admiration. Look at verse 18. Remember, context. We, we didn't read all of this this morning. We read por portion, uh, portion of it, but, but notice what, what it says here. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. God spoke to David. God promised David that he would, would build him a house, a dynasty, and from his house, his offspring would come, and that offspring would ultimately rule and reign forever. And, and he's just dumbfounded. He is full of awe and wonder about what God has just promised him, and it's no, no surprise that he sat down. Let me ask you a few questions here. Have you ever climbed to the top of El Capitan or another high place um, in Yosemite and looked out over God's creation in wonder? I mean, you stand at a place like that and you're like, this is just amazing. I remember flying into La Paz, um, Bolivia, 
and it's, it's in the heart of the Andes. And when you fly in, you just see these mountains all over the place. And they, they make mountains we have look like just bumps. Huge. And it's just like, this is amazing. One of the reasons why it's good to have a window seat when you're flying into La Paz. Um, have you ever been camping in the vast countryside at night and looked up into the sky and taken in all of the stars, even the shooting ones? And you're just like, wow. God's creation is wonderful. You're just amazed. Have you ever driven on the 17-mile drive in Carmel and taken in the amazing California coastline? Now, see, we, most, most of us have grown up here. It's like, oh, you know, California coastline. I mean, if you're from Michigan, which is where I was from, Michigan has a pretty nice coastline. It doesn't compare. I mean, California coastline is a beautiful thing. And you stand there, you, just, you see the shape of the coastline, you see the, the ocean and the rocks and the splashing and all that kind of stuff. And you're just like, even in a fallen world, it is beautiful. Which just lets you know that heaven is going to be this, <laughs> this incredible place. Have you ever been to Monterey Bay Aquarium and been mesmerized by the, the jellyfish? We went there a couple of weeks ago, and you see these big jellyfish, and they're all just kind of floating. And you can get up real close. And you get up real close, and you can see, obviously you can see through them, right? And you see all the little intricacies, and you're like, how does this even function? How does this even work? And then you move over, and, and they get smaller and smaller. You get these really teeny tiny ones that have the real big sting, right? You know, But they're little teeny tiny things, and, and they're just, there's hardly anything there. I mean, it looks like a contact lens. And you're just floating around. And again, you're just struck with, with, with the beauty of, of what God has created. Now, I'm giving you those images, friends, to ask you this. When you take in the beauty of God's correction, do you stop and maybe sit down and contemplate the full wonder of the world God has created? Secondly, when you hear God speak, or when a promise of God is revealed to you, that is for you, how do you respond? <laughs> I mean, you just read, oh, this is a promise, you know, God, he'll never leave me nor forsake me. Huh. Just, just think about the impact of that. I mean, no matter where I am, that promise is riveted into my soul. Now, friends, we sit back and we are in awe of what God says. Do we, do we marvel at what he says to us in his word? Do we find ourselves reading God's word and, and being smacked silly because God's goodness and grace is, is shown to us through his word? We're stunned by his love. We're, we're shaken by his power and might. We're, we're humbled by his tenderness and care. And we're broken because our complaint against God we see is unjust. See, David, David heard God turn over his desire to build a house and instead promised to build David a house, a dynasty, and he sits down in wonder and he's astonished and he's amazed and his admiration for God is exponentially magnified. 
This is no small response, friends. And he begins by responding personally as a servant. Let's look at verse 18 again. Here he's reflecting on God's goodness thus far. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Now think about it. Why, why would God choose a shepherd boy, the runt of the pack, from an obscure family in Bethlehem to be his king? Why would God choose to build David's dynasty and his line as a royal line of blessing? There are no human answers to those questions. Remember, the fact that David was a man after God's own heart is not a reflection of David's character. That's a reflection of God's character saying, here is a man after my heart. Here is the, the man I have chosen. But David can reflect on God's grace and his goodness thus far and praise God for what he has done. We, friends, can do the same as we, we think about what God has done in our lives thus far. Now listen, our lives have not been rosy. There have been times of difficulty and hardship, and I know looking around this room, I've heard many of the stories, I know the sicknesses, I know some of the challenges, I know some of the ways that, that people have been in very, very dangerous and difficult circumstances, and yet God has carried them through. And you look back, and you see how God has sustained you thus far, and it's fuel, friends, to drive you to praise. But then he also reflects on God's goodness to come, his goodness to come. Look at verse 19. And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord, God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. David was, was praising God for the goodness and grace that Israel would continue to enjoy far into the future. David had been the recipient of God's grace. Israel would continue to be the recipient of God's grace. But get this, this promise ultimately would be an instruction for who? For mankind, for humanity. God's promise to Abraham and now to David would continue to have an impact on mankind. David is praising God for the evidence of his promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, saying, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's just an amazing promise, and he's, he's reflecting on all that. David understood that God's word of promise and blessing to him were also words and promise of blessing to mankind. And so the instruction for mankind, you might even say a little better here, the charter for mankind, and ultimately we know that charter for mankind is the gospel of Jesus Christ for mankind. God has prepared through the line of David the answer to man's need, and that is Jesus Christ himself. David is reflecting on all that God has said here. He doesn't quite understand the end result, but he knows that God is going to fulfill his promise. Now friends, it's good for us to reflect over God's work in the past as well as work that he is still to do. 
reflecting on your life, reflecting on your family, reflecting on the, the life of your church, reflecting in the future of God's kingdom. And God's activity with his children isn't always easy. There are going to be times of trial. So we're not, not here to, to kind of play around and say that if you follow God and you believe his promises, everything's going to be okay. No, those promises help us endure and face those trials in a way that would honor him and, and further his, his gospel. We all have to endure the loss of loved ones. We will have to face sickness or, or hunger or famine or, or a family dysfunction. And maybe it's financial hardship. And our lives will be a series of seasons, some good, some bad, some empty, some full. But behind it all, we find comfort and confidence because we know that God has been at work and he continues to work out his promises to us. You see, he holds us fast. He is sovereign. He is creator. He is Lord. And he holds fast those who are his. In John 10 and verse 10, Jesus is speaking, and here's what he says. He says, I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. The word abundant means fully. It's a promise that through the gospel we can live a new life that is full. Or maybe to say it a little differently, full and meaningful life is found only in Christ. But lest we're only, well, we should continue on here in, the, in, in this strain of thinking. Philippians 1.6, the Apostle Paul kind of hits the same note. And he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Just continuing now to, to, to accomplish what he set out to do. But again, lest we're only comforted with the benefits of the gospel, it's worth being reminded of the troubles that come with the gospel. John 15, 20. Jesus again reminds us, saying, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So this, this trouble that we may be experiencing can be the result of simply who we are and our identification with Christ. Even Job praises God through his trial by saying, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. That's Job 13, 15. So David looks to God's past grace, and he looks to his present grace, but now, still in awe, he looks directly at God. And this is the third thing here. He's reflecting on God's great sovereignty to do what he says he will do. Listen, what good is it if someone makes a promise but isn't able to fulfill that promise? Now, we all fall short in that category, right? We all make promises, and we've all fallen short of actually following through with that. But God never does. Look at verse 20. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. So what more can I say? I really don't have the words to truly express how great you are. You know me? And David says, what you have done for me has come from your heart. You have taken time to, to condescend to me so that I can know your heart by revealing this promise to me. 
And friends, just contemplate that reality. God has revealed himself to us. Yes, we can say in nature in a general sense, but he's revealed himself specifically to us in the pages of his word. And not only that, because you as a child of God have the Holy Spirit living in you, he illuminates that word. He helps you understand that word. That is a gift to us. So when you open the word of God and you read it and you say, wow, look at what God is saying. That is no small thing. That God has chosen to reveal himself to you. And that's what David is saying. Not only have you said this is what you're going to do, but you've chosen to reveal it to me. And friends, we have the privilege in having the word of God to know what God is like. To, to, to have an awareness of what he expects of us. To, to know how we can be reconciled to him. And we don't deserve to know God's heart, but God willingly and joyfully reveals himself and draws us in, and what God has promised in his word, he will do. And friends, that is the nail that is hammered on every page of the Bible. God is sovereign, God is glorious, God is great. What he says, he will do. And notice then, the logic that he brings here to this praise. Verse 22, therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. So he's saying two things. Truly, God is great, and truly, God is unique. The fact that God has spoken this promise is evidence of how great he is, but he's also unique. There is none like him. There's no being like our God. There is truly no God beside him. What David is saying here is what Hannah prayed in her prayer at the beginning of 1 Samuel. You want to turn back there, 1 Samuel 2 and verse 2. And I don't think there's any surprise in the unfolding story here of God raising up a king that David's words would reflect Hannah's words. Because remember the context of Hannah. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. And then you have the beginning of 1 Samuel, and you have this, this priest who's just a failure. And the people who are not even, when they come to worship, they're coming, and it's immorality, and it's all this, these sacrifices that have been, been distorted. And so God raises up Samuel, the son of Hannah. And in Hannah's words, here's what she says, verse 2 of chapter 2. There is none holy like the Lord. In other words, there's none unique like the Lord. For there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. And friends, there's a sense in which what we have here are some, some bookends to remind us who are reading this. Remember, First and Second Samuel were actually one book at one time. 
So you have the beginning of the story here emphasized with, with Hannah and, 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 and her prayer just kind of gives you kind of a, a, a picture of what is yet to come in the story. And here we now have God resounding again through the words of David, the same reality, the same God who is unique, who is holy, who is not like any other God around, fulfilling what he said he would do. And we got that throughout 1 Samuel, right? I'm going to raise up a king. I'm going to raise up a king. And now he raises up a king. And David is praising God for the fact that he fulfilled his promise in raising him up to be king. And this wasn't all about David. This was about the fact that God fulfilled the promise that he said he was going to do. And when we take time to look and listen, we'll come to see the same conclusion and be struck down with wonder, which will drive us to praise that in both the joys and the sorrows of life, God is sovereign. He is our, O oh Lord God, right? He is great. He is gracious. He is to be held in wonder. So that's God's with David praising now God for what he is doing in him. The next section now is David praising God for what he's doing in his people, in his people. David isn't just thinking about himself. He is a, a shepherd at heart, and he knows that God's sheep are precious to him. Just as, as a shepherd, his sheep were precious to him. David prays begins now with the question, or it began with the question, who am I? And of course that implies I'm an unworthy subject to be given this privilege. But David now continues his praise with a similar question, who are your people Israel? I want you to think about that. Who are they? Well, the, that question is answered um, in the next few verses here. First of all, they are a redeemed people. They are a redeemed people. Look at verse 23 and following. And who was like your people Israel and the, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. Now, there's three aspects here from this, this little section of verse, verse 23. Um, I think we can just kind of draw out some things about God's redemption here. First of all, they are one nation chosen from among others. Have you ever thought about that? God chose Abraham out of all the people living on the earth at that time, and he chose to bless Abraham and through him to make him a great nation. Why did he choose someone or why didn't he choose someone like Nahor or Haran or Lot? Why not someone from Egypt or the Amorites? God, in his wisdom, chose Abraham. Why? Because God chose to choose Abraham. Does that make sense? There wasn't anything about Abraham specifically, except that God chose him. We can't comprehend that because we don't choose in the same way. So why didn't he choose anyone else? Well, because that's who he chose. Simply because of his sovereign 
will. Secondly, they have been redeemed from bondage. That's what this passage says. This nation of Israel, God redeemed from bondage. Of course, this is referring to the bondage of slavery under the yoke of the Egyptians. But he says to redeem, and he redeems them. And the idea of redemption, of course, means purchasing something with a price. And in this case, it's referring to God's deliverance of Israel from the bondage that they were in in Egypt. The great and awesome things being talked about here are the, the plagues and the parting of the waters at the Red Sea. This is what God was doing. He was redeeming them from their bondage. But not only that, here's the third thing. They have been redeemed to God. Now catch this. This is really important. God set them free from their bondage, but now they belong to him. Now that may not seem good at first to people who may not quite understand the God of Israel, because many kingdoms, or maybe many kings and nations have liberated people from their tyrants only to be put back in bondage by their liberators. And you only have to go back to the Second World War to see that people that were under Hitler were set free only to be put under Stalin. But God here redeems people from their bondage, but he redeems them to himself. God is a good God, and he redeemed his people for himself, and that is good news for us. It was good news for Israel. His liberation of Israel from Egypt has truly set them free. God grants them freedom, but get this, he doesn't grant them independence. Now, in a, in a soupy Christianity, we can say, Woohoo, I've been redeemed, I've been redeemed, great, I have my salvation. But God is screaming at us from this passage I redeemed you, I have bought you for myself. We are His. He doesn't say, I just bought you, now go do what you want. He says, I've bought you. And I've brought you into, and talking now about the church, I brought you into my family. I'm your father. So listen to me. Follow me. Submit to me. That's a good thing, friends. Because our God is a good God, and what he says is trustworthy, and we should listen to him. But he's redeemed us, not just so we can live our lives however we want to live them. He's redeemed us. He set us free so that we could be free in him, but also connected to him, submitting to him, listening to him. We're his. We're slaves of God. Now, taken as a whole then, he chose them, he redeemed them from bondage, and he redeemed them for himself. They belong to him. That means that God's kindness, grace, love, and protection go with Israel as a nation. And friends, Israel's redemption was a glorious foreshadowing of the true and final redemption that we have in Christ Jesus. Here's just two passages to to kind of get your mind thinking in that direction. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And so what Peter is saying, it was the purchase price of the death of Christ on the cross that redeemed you from your sin. 
And then 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So, since you're his, glorify God in your body. You see how these, these things work together. We're free to submit to our great and glorious God. And friends, that's really helpful. That's really um, clarifying for we who are God's children, living in a, a spiritual milieu that is confused. We belong to him. So they are a redeemed people. Secondly, they are a preserved people. They are preserved people. Look at verse 24. And you established for yourself, your people Israel, to be your people forever. And the two words that scream from this text are established and forever. To be established means that God initiated and set in place the promises uh, and, and the carrying out of those promises and raising up Israel. The idea of forever here is mentioned three times. It's used to affirm that David's dynasty was unlimited in its duration. So God here was preserving his people forever. And David recognizes that God's people, Israel, and his dynasty then are preserved. Not because of anything that David has done, but only because of their God who preserves his promises for his people forever. Now, isn't, isn't that what God says about his church? That the gospel and the church would face countless kind of um, uh, abuse and, and uh, challenges and conflict and inundations of, of all sorts of oppression, but the gates of hell, what does scripture say, would not prevail. <laughs> See, God promises, yes, you're going to live in this world. There's going to be difficult. There's going to be all sorts of trial. But, but you are secure in me. My church is my church. And there's nothing that Satan can throw at it that will destroy that church. Whatever he throws at the church, that church will prevail. Whether it's tragedy, oppression, persecution, or worldliness, the church will prevail. And that's what Jesus tells us when he speaks about his sheep in John, John 10. We actually sang about that. It's actually the idea of, uh, of the song that we, we sang there, He Will Hold Me Fast. John chapter 10, verse 28 and 29, I think, go together. Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Just get the picture there. He's giving a picture. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And if you have any questions about how that is secure, continue reading. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You see this, this, this double picture of God's protection, God's preservation of his people. He will hold them fast. So they are a redeemed people. They are a preserved people. But not, not only that, they are a, a privileged people. And it says, and you, O Lord, became their God. Friends, this is, this is covenant language. A covenant that reflects marriage. Listen to Exodus 6 and verse 7. This is God speaking. I will take you to be my people, 
and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Again, it began there. I will take you to be my people. Doesn't that sound like a marriage vow to you? Now, many of you know that my wedding was in Spanish and that all I had to say was see at the right time. But in my heart, I was looking into the eyes of my bride and I was saying, I, Rod, take you, Elia, to be my wedded wife. And friends, those are covenant words. They mean something. And when God becomes our God, when he takes us to be his people, we have become a privileged people. My friends, for, for God to seek you out and to draw you to himself and to welcome you into his family means that God has exercised his grace, but it also means that you, who've been the recipient of that grace, are a privileged person. And do we take that seriously? He becomes our God. We become his people. We who are God's children say along with David, who am I? I'm so unworthy to be the recipient of your grace. And, and who is like your people? In our case, the church. That you would deliver us from the bondage of sin and, and bind us to yourself. That you would preserve us in Christ. That you would welcome us into your family as sons and daughters. Who is like you, God? You are worthy to be praised. You deserve all glory and all honor. This is David's praise to God that is fueled by his wonder. Now, we shift gears. Based on his praise and based on the promises, David now turns to prayer. Praise is reflecting back to God. Wonder and adoration and celebration for who he is, what he has said, what he has done, what he is doing. And now he shifts gears and he begins to pray with the fuel of God's promises. Do you allow your time reflecting on God's character and promises to fuel your life with prayer? When you take time to reflect on who God is and what he has done for you, as well as all those who are called his people, you gain perspective. And your prayers are not simply selfish petitions. God, you know, help me today because I'm not feeling that great and I need, you know, strength. And they can be kind of, you know, this is what I want, what I want, what I need, when I need. But at the same time, and we're not saying that we shouldn't pray that way. We should but our petitions, ultimately, when we spend time looking into God's word and mining God's word, our petitions then become grounded in a solid, excuse me, a solid understanding of God and his ways. I mean, last week, David began by saying, God, I want to build you a house. I want to do great things for you because you're a great God and you deserve it. Woohoo! I want to do that. And God says... No, I got other plans. You know, 
if it was us, we'd be like, what do you mean? I had this great idea, God. God says, no, my plan is to build a house through you. Oh. Now, how do we respond to what God does? How do we respond to his promises and what he says? When we begin to understand what God is doing in our lives, we then, even when we're praying to him, are also humble before him. God, I'm struggling with a sickness. I'm praying for healing. But now my theology kicks in and says, but maybe that trial or suffering is all part of God's plan to grow me, to strengthen me. So Lord, I know you can heal, and I pray for healing, but I'm going to rest in you no matter what. <laughs> okay, Both are true. Both are good. And both can be prayed with complete confidence and passion. That is why in verse 27, David expresses that God's promises have given him courage to pray this prayer to God. And like David, we can come boldly to the throne of grace in prayer. And like David, we can ask that astounding promises be converted into historical reality. What God says, we want to see happen. And so we pray that what God says will happen will actually happen. Now hear this. Because we pray it doesn't mean it's going to happen. God's going to do what he's going to do because God is sovereign and he will do what he says he's going to do. So you might come to this section and say, then why bother praying? Because God is not just the God of the ends, he's also the God of the means. In other words, God is sovereign over the ends, accomplishing what he says, but he's also sovereign over the means by which those things come about. So he, he, in the big picture of things, wants his children to pray to him and to reflect back these prayers based on his promises. There's nothing that you're going to see here that David says that somehow twists God's arm and says, okay, I'll do it. It's not how prayer works. It's not what's going on here. What's going on is David is basically saying, God, you do what you said you're going to do because you are a great God. Now, let's see that. First of all, verse 25, he says, confirm and do as you have spoken. Look at verse 25. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and current concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. In other words, God, do what you promised that you would do. This is how Jesus taught us to pray. He said, pray, thy kingdom come. Now we know what? That his kingdom is going to what? Come. But we still pray, thy kingdom come. You have promised that your kingdom is going to come, and now we're going to pray that it's going to come. This kind of prayer can only be prayed by a person who knows what God has promised and also believes that it is good. We can only pray like this if we can truly praise God for what he has revealed. And if you don't like what God has promised, or if you're having difficulty coming to terms with what he has revealed, you won't be able to pray like this. David's praise 
for God's promises, for his word, is what fuels his prayer. So he's aware of who God is. He's aware of his character. He's aware of what God has done. He's aware of what God is doing. And he's aware, even in seed form, of what God is going to do. And the friends, the same is true for us. God has revealed himself. We can look back in our lives. We can look presently in our lives. And we have promises that we can hope in and we can pray with the fuel of those things for God to do what he says he's going to do. Secondly, notice verse 26. He says, magnify your name. Verse 26. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. When that house is built and when God is in the process of building that house, he will be magnifying his name, his character, who he is. So all of God's promises to David and Israel would be a witness to the reputation of God. He is the Lord of armies. He is the God over Israel. And what he says about Israel and David's dynasty will come to pass. But this is also an echo of what Samuel had said in his speech at Gilgal. That's 1 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 22. Just listen. He says, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. See, this is all about God's character, God's reputation, his name. John Woodhouse helps us bridge the gap when he says this, the kingdom of David's offspring is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So what God is promising through David ultimately then is the kingdom of Christ. And this is what the Apostle Paul says. He uses similar language to show that the gospel is what magnifies God's name among the nations. Romans 1 and verse 5. In this verse we have the theme of Romans. But let's just read this. Though uh, whom we have received, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. That's the theme. For the sake of his name among the nations. See, his name, his reputation, his glory is central to all that is being done in proclaiming the gospel. In writing this letter to the Romans, God is concerned about his name. And again, Paul reveals to us in the book of Ephesians that it is the church that continues this ministry of Ephesians 3.10 so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, the, the, the reputation, the wisdom of God, the, the knowledge of the character of God is going to be made known. Now, friends, this is, this is God and his name being magnified through his people. And then again, we come to this section, I already mentioned it, but it's this idea of courage, and just, just think how this unfolds from this passage. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. David reminds us that it takes courage to pray boldly and passionately. It takes courage to face trials and struggles and joys and times of prosperity in light of God's word. But notice where David's strength comes from. He summarized it in the following words, verse 28. And now, O Lord God, you are God, 
and your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Three things there, right? The Lord is truly God. My friends, just in case you're wondering, just in case you're, you're questioning, just in case there might be a shadow of a doubt, what screams from the text of God's word is that God is God and he is the only God. And David is convinced of that reality. Secondly, your words are true. David is saying, what you say is trustworthy. And friends, if we can't say that about God's word, we're sunk. He is God. His words are true. But notice what's what's next. The Lord's promises are good. Now, the Lord's promises don't always mean that it's going to be about good times. Because sometimes there'll be a promise that says, you know, if you do this, this is what you're going to get. But that promise comes from a God who is good, who is consistent, and ultimately, if there is discipline, is, that, is disciplining us like a father who loves his children. Now, can you say these statements? Do you believe them? They are at the core of our relationship with God, and if any of these fall, they all fall. Our experience may cast doubt we must wrestle ourselves back to the place where we see things rightly because God has revealed himself in his word. Here's the third thing. David now says, bless the house of your servant. Now that sure sounds selfish, doesn't it? What is David doing here? Is this like a health, wealth, and prosperity, David, that kicks up here at the end? Is that what's going on? Absolutely not. Notice what it says, verse 29. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. He is simply saying, like he began, by saying, God, this is your promise. This is what you've said. Now do it. Bless your house forever. Bring about your plan. Psalm 72, 17 says this, May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Now the reality is, friends, David would have been hard-pressed to see the specifics of this promise fulfilled. He would not have imagined a person like Jesus Christ going to a cross, but he certainly had an awareness that God was going to accomplish his purposes through his line and that the the throne that was established would be forever. But we, because we have the witness of the New Testament, see this blessing ultimately fulfilled in the Gospels and ultimately in Christ. I want to draw your attention just to three passages of Scripture here just to kind of rivet this in our hearts so Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, we've looked at this a few times, but just look at Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, and this is what it says. It begins this way, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I mean, the New Testament starts off saying, this is all connected to David. All right? Well, let's think now about Paul and his preaching. In his last letter... 2 Timothy, here's what the Apostle Paul says, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8. 
Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. So what's he saying? He's saying, listen, this whole blessing that came from David and has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ is central to the gospel that I've been preaching through my ministry, Timothy. Carry it on. And if you go to the book of Revelation, chapter 22, almost to the last verse, verse 16, here's Jesus speaking. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of who? Of David, bright and morning star. See, this this Davidic covenant, this promise to David, splashes into the Gospels and throughout the New Testament. It is central to who we know Jesus Christ to be. He is the fulfillment of this promise. Friends, David may not have seen the, the full extent of that, but he was in awe. I hope just in showing you a few bits and pieces of God's word there, how it connects together. You are in greater awe of the God that is yours, that you belong to. He's redeemed you. He's preserved you. You are privileged to have him as your God. Now, a couple of things to to wind this up. I realize when we're talking here, about the promises of God, this particular section of Scripture, the promises are in a positive manner, right? So he's celebrating about what God is saying that's good. And we need to recognize then there is is a response that we should have then when we are going through times of prosperity. We need humility. We need gratitude. We need a a God-word thinking because, you know, it's so easy in our prosperity to begin to say, you know, I maybe don't need God so much. And yet, we do, because we're so prone to wander. Psalm 67, I think, answers the question. I would, I would encourage you to turn there. And this is, this is a, a song, this is a prayer, and this is an answer that helps us to understand how we deal with prosperity and God's kindness and his goodness to us. Psalm 67, and friends, this drives us to do ministry. This drives us to do missions. This drives us to be gracious. Psalm 67, verse one, may God be gracious to us and bless us. It sounds really self-serving, doesn't it? And make his face to shine upon us. Get this, that, here's the reason, that your way may be known on the earth your saving power among the nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Here's that blessing going to mankind now that was talked about in David's prayer here. Verse four, let the nations be glad and sing for joy for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God Our God shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Now, what's going on here? 
This is a song. This is a prayer. This is what the, the children of Israel would sing. This is what they would, they would sing together. And we together as God's people would recite this or read this now. We'd say, God, bless us. But the, the so that isn't so that I can get, you know, a boat or a truck or a bigger house or a vacation or time off. The so that is so that the ministry of the gospel can go forward. So he's saying, bless us, be gracious to us, and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known in the earth. So God provides prosperity so that his children out of that prosperity can communicate, can be a part of the sending aspect of the gospel to the nations so that mankind can receive the blessing of the promise of God, which is the gospel. So if you are a prosperous person, which we all are, (laughs) what are you doing with that prosperity for the glory of God? It's one thing to stand and praise him. Oh, it's great. Look at all you've done for me. But God expects something of you as his child to respond in praise, in prayer, but also in graciousness, in generosity. Now, that's praise and prayer during times of prosperity. That's prayer and praise during times of difficulty. And I think we probably relate to this one a lot more. What we need is encouragement, resolve, confidence, and hope. And I just want to share a little story as we close here about a German pastor by the name of Martin Rinkart. Probably don't know his name. He served in the wall town of Eilenburg during the Thirty Years' War of 1618, which lasted um, 30 years, of course, to, to 1648. And Eilenburg was an, an overcrowded town, but a refuge for the surrounding area where fugitives who suffered from epidemic or famine would, would, would find them, themselves help and care. Four pastors served in Eilenburg at the time of the Great Plague. One abandoned his post, and Pastor Rinkart officiated at the funerals of two of the others. And as the only pastor left, Rinkart c- conducted many funeral services each day, totaling finally in the thousands. I'm just, as a pastor, I'm just, I'm just contemplating what life would be like as a pastor in that kind of a context. But among those funerals was the funeral of his beloved wife. Still, Pastor Rinkert wrote the following prayer for his children to offer to the Lord. So just get the context here. Serving in a town, people are suffering, people are dying, funerals every day. One of those funerals is mom. Now here is a prayer kids, that we need to pray to God. Now thank we all our God with hearts and hands and voices who wondrous things hath done in whom this world rejoices, who from our mother's arms hath led us on our way with countless gifts of love, and still 
is ours today. You see, there is a prayer offered that is rooted in an awareness of the character of God and his promises. And even in the vast suffering that is going on, and even the death of a wife and a mother, he can say, now thank we all our God. Friends, we serve that kind of God that even we, when we go through difficulties, when we go through trials, or we go through good times, he holds us securely in his hands. And we can turn to him, we can lean on him, we can find wisdom, but he, he breathed out his promises to us as a means by which we can praise him, but also that we can come to him in prayer and say, God, do what you said you're going to do. No matter what the situation is in my life, accomplish what you said you're going to accomplish. Can we say that? Lord, help us. Help us. Help us. We are so easily caught up in our prosperity. And so often in our prosperity, we neglect to give you the glory. We neglect to see that it is your hand that has been at work in our lives. It's you who have accomplished these things. And yet, Lord, even in our times of difficulty, trial, and suffering, Lord, you have a purpose. You are at work, and, 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 and you've given us your word, you've given us your promises to, to be an anchor for us in all of those times. Lord, you hold us fast. You don't let us go. And today, Lord, we praise you. We praise you for your goodness. We praise you for your character. We want your name to be magnified here in Castor Valley and around the world. We want your gospel to be proclaimed. We want it to be lived out among your people. And Lord, we pray together today for you to do what you have promised that you said that you're going to do in us, through us, for your glory. We ask this now in your precious name. Amen.